And so as we sit, I invite you to take a deep breath, become centered and still in the inside. Let your muscles relax. And breathe into your heart space. So I open my heart and I quiet my mind. And I become present. I can feel my heartbeat. And I know that the entire cosmos is one with all of life, that we are interconnected at every level, and that when one of us suffers, we all suffer somewhat, and that when one of us celebrates, we all are risen up, that we are one whole, So I know that within, I have the power to choose, to think, to respond in ways that serve my good, and that we are filled with a power beyond measure, beyond what our intellect can even imagine. And so this day I remember that life itself is a gift, and I savor it. I know that this season of Approaching harvest is a beautiful time. And so I remember to breathe, to see with my eyes and my heart, and to know the truth that all is well. I invite you to claim that with me, setting down anything that's not serving us with ease and grace. And together we say, and so it is. Well, Dr. Patrick is in Brazil with a, quite a nice group of people from our center. I remember last November, I went with a group and with Dr. Patrick and Laura, and it really was an awe-inspiring experience. And it taught me how to meditate for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> and how to recognize my busy mind and see that it was almost in waves of attachment to things. And then, because we had hours, eventually my mind would clear and I could come back to that still and calm place. And I think that that's life, that we have waves in our lives that maybe are storms, and then there's beautiful times of calm and quiet and serenity. There's times when we feel empowered and certain, and there's times when we feel like we've completely lost our way. We need each other in those times. Because when one of us has a little light, it just helps us all see in the dark. I like this story. Bill Clinton was just new to his office, and he was obviously struggling a little bit. He'd had Dr. Jane Houston in for a little mentoring, he and Hillary, and he said this about his work. He said that being the president and running the country is a lot like running a cemetery. There's a lot of people under you, but nobody's listening. 
I was talking to my husband, Norm, about mentoring and asked kind of what his thoughts were on the subject as I was just sort of starting to get my talk together. And he said, well, you know, this, this, this little memory pops into my mind when you say that. When I retired, my good friend, who we both know, lovely guy, said, Norm, you know, now that you're retired, would you mind being my mentor? And Norm said, well, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to be a mentor, but sure, you know, he enjoyed his company. He thought, yeah, if he could help him in some way, he would. So they got together, and they thought they'd get together maybe four times a year, and they'd meet in a hotel, they'd stay overnight, and they'd have long talks. And so a couple of these sessions happened, and uh, Norm turned to him one day and said, you know, I don't think this mentor thing is working, because every time I suggest something or give you some advice, all you do is argue with me. And the guy said, mentoring? No, I didn't ask for mentoring. I said tormenting. <laughs> it all depends on your state of mind, whether you're able to actually receive advice <laughs> or not. <laughs> Sometimes we think we want a mentor, but really we just want to talk and be affirmed. <laughs> and really not, we're not really open. So I was wondering, well, where did the idea of mentoring even come from? And actually it came from 800 BC in the time when the Homer's Odyssey was being written, well, it's, it's myth, hey? But this is the time that this oral history and story was being told, and Mentor was actually Hercules' son. Hercules' son in his old age, and the king was going off to the Trojan War, and he had a young prince, a young son called Telemachus, and he asked Mentor to really look after and maybe be a father substitute for his son Telemachus. And Mentor was, um, I would say, ineffective, distracted, and there was issues going on in the palace. And so the goddess, Athena, decided to come down and transform herself into the body and face and attitude of Mentor and provide, she's a goddess of wisdom and justice, and that she would provide the wisdom and support that Telemachus really needed to stay out of trouble and to evolve as a young man. We probably wouldn't have even known about Mentor except that a book got written about, it was called The Adventures of Telemachus, so that's the young son that was being mentored. And it was written by a Catholic bishop who was a poet and a, a quite a, obviously someone who was very interested in evolving society. And the society in France at the time was very unimpressed with its royalty. They were self-centered, selfish, lacking in democracy, had no real interest in the people that they served. And so this French author, this Catholic bishop, wrote this wonderful book, inspiring book, that people talked about. It was the beginning of a romantic period. It really set the tone, named all the things in a society that should be happening through the voice of the mentor, mentor, to Telemachus. And so people were sure that it was really about King Louis XIV and that the son was King Louis XV. And so when King Louis finally took the throne, they really expected that he would, even though they knew it was just a story, that somehow he would have embodied this wisdom from the book and from, its, from the Catholic bishop. The Catholic bishop actually got banished and so was not allowed to be part of society once he'd written the book. But that book was passed on throughout the 1700s and most people read it. 
And Rousseau actually based a lot of his thinking about what a just society should be on that book and on the, the uh, ideas of that Catholic bishop. They have done a study in uh, 19, sort of 1995, 2010, somewhere in that era, they did a mentoring technique study because business was starting to pick up the idea that mentoring would really make their business thrive. So it's not just a simple process as mentoring. There's many ways to mentor. One is to just learn side by side. That's kind of like the ancient, the medieval guilds where they you know, taught the young men to build cathedrals or to create swords and they worked beside each other and they sort of taught as they went. But another way, and I think this is the way that most parents think of mentoring, is that you sow seeds that the person that's receiving the seed, the idea, the wisdom, is really not ready for. And won't accept particularly. I think that's been my experience raising children. You, you, you know, you try to pass your wisdom over, you'd like them not to make the same mistakes. You think you can sort of pave the path to the future a little more easily, but you know what, they, they can't take it in. And now in their 30s and early 40s, I hear them sometimes talking and I think, oh, that seed was planted way back here and the harvest is you know, 20 years, 25 years later. So I think that's the way in business too. If we have a young protege that sometimes they simply don't know enough to really understand what we're trying to pass on to them, but we say it anyway. The other thing that we often see is that you're just tossed straight in cold into uh, the crisis, into the not knowing, and that sometimes that's the best teacher, that when you're tossed in, it's very humbling when you really know you don't know. And then that sometimes opens us right up that we are ready to be taught. Our ego is sat down, teach me. I'm, I'm, now, I'm now mentorable. The other one is, and this is the one I really think is so important, is that the mentor walks the talk. They actually live what they're trying to teach. That the, if the mentor is talking to their protege and saying that you need to set your ego down, that the mentor can set their ego down too. Or that don't compete, let's collaborate. Work together, let's work together as a team. If the mentor does not model that, then the, the student or the protege, the mentee, knows that it probably isn't really, it doesn't give it any weight. If the mentor lacks integrity, when it really counts, they really lose their esteemed position and their power as a mentor. That's so true of us as parents, not that we're perfect, but it's so true in business, it's so true in most walks of life that it's easy to read the book and tell the story, but if we don't walk the talk, then it just, you know, we probably don't even realize it, but it, it really, it, we're just not transferring our skill. Then there's always a piece in mentoring, which is the harvest, where it's, you ask the person being mentored, what are they learning? What have they learned? How are they using what they're being taught? And somehow just telling our story out loud cements us it in our being. That until someone asks us, and we have to actually think about it, and then we actually speak it, we actually, it can just be, we just don't realize that we've actually received the wisdom, or that we've changed our behavior, or what we've really learned in the process. The great Gatsby has a great quote about mentors. Why have a mentor? Gatsby is the guy that was the mentor. He concentrates on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. He believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself, 
and assured you that he had precisely the impression of you that you at your best had hoped to convey. I really identified with this because I know this about myself. I love to make a very good impression. It's very important to me that you think well of me. That's my shadow. <laughs> and so I work very hard to present my best self. That, there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, it can be overdone. And I would say that for me, when I bond with you in classes, in meetings, and in conversations, when you actually share with me your weaknesses, or the places in life where you stumbled, that's where we have intimacy with each other. Is that your experience? We really don't need to know how perfect the other is. Sometimes it helps a lot to know that I've struggled, to know that I have, I got a mentor at a point in my life when my life was a mess. When I had just a fire in every house, <laughs> in my work, in my home, in my extended family. And I asked for a mentor. I asked for any help because I knew I had thought and problem solved to my absolute best. And I had run out of ideas and run out of inner resources and run out of energy and run out of hope and run out of optimism. And I got a mentor. And I found this center too. I actually got several mentors, but one was fantastic. She was a behavioral psychologist and I had gone to some of her workshops and she spoke a language that I didn't understand about boundaries. She talked about being enmeshed. She talked about um, conflict resolution. She talked about unconditional positive regard. She talked about collaboration, not, not competition. She just had a, just a toolbox that was rich and wonderful, but she also had this great ability to confront me with my <laughs> glitches in such a loving way that I knew that she wanted my good, that she saw good in me and that she could speak to me in such a way that I realized it did not hurt, and I didn't feel less because of it. And so I think that one of the wonderful qualities of good mentor is there's this unconditional optimism about you. No matter how messed up you might be at the time, they just see your potential, and you know they do. And they know that when they, when you, you know that when they give you advice, they're giving it because they they really think it will help you and they care about you. And they care enough to take the time and energy to kind of plant the seed in you. And even when you don't know what to do with it, it's still, you know that you've, you feel it in your body that you've received something, even if you don't know enough yet to know what it is. Has that happened to you? I think anybody probably over the age of maybe 25 has had some bit of this. Before that, our parents and, and many other teachers have probably tried lots to sow the seeds, and I think so far they're latent. <laughs> they're latent. So mentors can be great for our mental health. They can give us advice in any situation. There's someone that we can trust. We want to choose a, a, a mentor. It's nice if we choose the mentor, really. We need to find someone that we can trust and that we feel very compatible with. Someone that we can go to in the, 
when, we're, when our life is in a storm and we need a port and that we can be really honest and vulnerable about what's happening and, and that we actually don't know what to do about it and sometimes we don't actually look very put together as we go to our mentor and share all this. A Zen master says this, that he was, he was uh, asked by a university dean to come and be a mentor because the university dean had a lot of young professors uh, under his tutelage and he was wanting to mentor them and it, it wasn't working. It was, he was having the experience of Bill Clinton perhaps or even maybe Norm, just it wasn't happening. So the Zen master came in and they had a t conversation and the Zen master picked up the teapot and started to pour the tea and as the, the dean was con complaining and telling, he kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and tea was going over the cup, through the, all over the table and the dean said, what, what, the cup is full, it's overflowing. And the Zen master said, when the cup is full, it cannot receive the tea. So he took the cup, he dumped it out, he had it empty, and he said, you must have an empty cup before it can receive your wisdom. So he was telling him that when your young professors come to you with their problems, first they have to empty their cup and talk. They've got to tell their story. They've got to be safe enough and have enough time to actually tell what's going on for them until they've emptied it out. And then they're ready to receive the mentoring advice. And so if you are working with children or you're working in a business or you're wanting to be a good teacher, remember that it's so important to let the other person really dump it out and become empty and that your job is just to be the container yourself, to hold them, no matter how frightening the story is or how convincing their limitation can be, that your job is to be the empty cup and just receive, let them pour it out, and then when they're finished, you can often paraphrase and reframe it in such a way that you can give them some nurturing and some optimism, that all is not lost. When we took ministerial studies, one of the books that I really liked was one called Mentor Spirit by Marcia Sinatar. And she talks about mentoring not as being a person as much as it being the divine itself that is the mentor and that we feel it all the time around us and that it flows through us. This idealism of what we think the world should be with, with its justice and its democracy and its unconditional positive regard and a world that works for everyone, that that itself is the mentor spirit flowing through us, that it's the divine itself. And that our cells resonate with that. And when we're working in an organization where that kind of optimism fills the organization, you can feel it. And when you're working in an organization where there is not this mentor spirit, this sense of I see the good in you and I want the good for you and for me, that the, the whole organization has a deadness to it and it just doesn't thrive. So the mentor spirit, to really receive it and, and use it, part of it is just being it, being, the, being a mentor yourself, walking the talk, really walking the talk of integrity, that if we have a conversation with someone where they have emptied their cup, that it's confidential and that we can be trusted to hold it as a sacred gift. Because if that trust is broken, 
then we cannot be an effective mentor. And we've really caused great harm. That it's important that when things are tough in the organization and they talk about being able to speak your truth even when you've screwed up and your mentor can actually do that and you see that happening in your organization, it's very empowering. Because we can sometimes think that it just is impossible that if we've screwed up, we're going to be shamed and blamed, and it can never be transformed into a gift to the agency. But I certainly know, and I'm sure you have too, I've seen great leaders who actually, even though you can tell it's gut-wrenching, they will say, you know what? I have to let you know I'm the one that did that. Do that. Yeah. You know, I spoke out of turn, or yeah, I said something I shouldn't have said, or I did something that, no, you're right. You know what? It was me and I'm sorry, and what can I do now to make restitution? I have done that. <laughs> and sometimes we do it easily when we're really held with our feet to the fire, when we're caught in the act, and they can describe when and where and how, and you know, you've got a witness, and there you are. But my mentor was so good to me because she would say, you know, you may think that your staff disrespect you for that, but they actually respect you more for that. That whenever you can screw up your courage, and go ahead and tell the truth and say, you know, I did drop the ball, it was me that did that, and I am sorry, and you know, I've learned from that, please forgive me. It's kind of that ono pono ono thing of saying, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me, thank you, it's that. Just saying I have this little mantra that when we screw up, we need to have our toolbox and we need to have our heart filled with courage, knowing that the mentor spirit will show up for us if we speak our truth with love, that we don't have to fall apart but that we can just own up. We all make mistakes. I think it's wonderful if you make a mistake that you fix it before you go to your boss, though. <laughs> That's always helpful. I was talking to my friend, Fran, the other day, and I was saying that this, I was giving this talk and, and, and about the being, being our values of being a mentor and walking the talk, and she said, uh, the person she always thinks of is a guy that's been in finance in, the, in our province for a long, long time and is a very a department head, a very good human being. And she's talked to me about him several times. Her and I worked together for a little stint and she had him come into our agency as the treasurer of the board and to be her mentor. And she worked for him for a while and then she went off and did other things. But she said that one of the things that he gave her, the gift he gave her that she always remember is you know how finance people can sometimes have the reputation and live it out too, that they are very rules-driven. They're very logical thinkers, and they really think that because they have the money that they're almost the program and they can make decisions about whether you can have it or you can't have it. But she said, this guy, the beauty of him was if someone went to him, and he was, I mean, it's really millions and millions of dollars, if someone went to him and said, this is what's happening, there's this family or there's this, this program and we really need to do this. This would be very important that we do this, but I need the money to do that. And the policy says this. The policy says it really can't be done. My experience with many people in finance is that they say, no, it's against the policy, end of conversation, you're done. But she said, not this guy. He said, always let me think about it. Then he'd go back to the office and he'd call together his staff and say, our job is to serve. We have this money, it's a sacred trust, we have policy, but our job is to figure out a way how to serve this real need. 
That's our job. We're, we are in leadership and our job is to serve. She said she never forgot that. And so whenever that happens to her, that there's policy and the person who wrote the policy was thinking of a certain thing, and that's the problem with all these policy procedures. The guy who writes it is thinking of a certain thing. The next guy comes along and they're not thinking of that. They don't even know that's how that policy got written and they're thinking something else. And if they want to, they can hang on to power by interpreting a policy in a way that seems to serve them. But the mentor spirit says, we're all one and that this is, we're here to serve as leaders and that as I lift you up, I lift myself up too. As we lift up the world, well, we're lifted up too. And as we pull back and, and uh, hold on tightly, we actually all lose when we do that. The mentor spirit is something I think that is a wonderful gift when you have it in an organization. And if you've worked in a place that, where you've had that kind of spirit, uh, it's really something to be thankful for. It's a spiritual thing, I think. It really is a spiritual thing. Scientists have been doing a lot of work around our brain and the intellect itself and our emotions, trying to figure out kind of uh, how to predict things and to see how information works, of why we make the decisions that we do and why we can't seem to do what we know. Is that your experience? You know better, but sometimes it's very hard to change a habit and actually do better. Well, there's a place in our brain that scientists have found that they've called the, the God spot. And Professor Ram Chadron is the director of the Center for Brain Research, and he has spent his profession, a long profession, a very respected profession, studying people with epilepsy. People with epilepsy have like a, a lightning storm in their temporal lobes. And this was something I did not know, is that many people with epilepsy have an experience of the divine when they have a seizure. And that this has been reported many, many, many times, and that there's lots of scientists who are aware of this. And this is the report of one person, which is very typical. There is a divine light that illuminates all things. That's his experience. There's an ultimate truth that I know and experience, that I know lies beyond the busyness of my day to day, and it's all crystal clear to me that there's no longer any doubt. There's this rapture and awareness of the divine with no categories and no boundaries. And it's a total immersion thing in illumined light and energy. And the scientists have asked if they would like to be healed from epilepsy. And many of them say no, that it is a consciousness that they would that, it, that is, uh, is ours in potential, but is theirs in actuality because of this seizure. So they have hooked up electrodes to other people who don't have epilepsy, and they have had them meditate, they've had them, um, they've used uh, kind of really inspiring words that may be linked with spirituality, um, they've had them pray, and that same area in the brain lights up. And that the mystics, that's the area of their brain that lights up when they have a mystical experience. And so they say that people with epilepsy, the ones that have this experience, are having a mystical experience. 
Now, it's easy to kind of discount that because you know, of the cause of it, but they said, well, one of the other things that they looked at is if a person is born blind and does not see, they can hook up these, the same sort of stimulation idea and stimulate the part of the brain where vision would be, and the person has the experience of seeing, not with their eyes, but in their brain, they have the experience of seeing. And so they said, because they have the experience of seeing, without seeing, because we know that when we see, it's real out here, what we see is real, it's really no different than the person with epilepsy having this divine experience. It's real. And this scientist and many other scientists in the realm of quantum physics are saying that they really think that this part of our brain is part of, uh, it's, that it's part of our DNA and that it, it's been uh, it, the reason we have it is it's for our own preservation of the species. That it's a necessary thing that makes us more sustained and, and uh, more, probably more optimistic and hopeful and more emotionally well. I'm also reading, I've been reading this book for the last several weeks. It's written by Dana Sohar. She's a quantum physicist. She's also a um, leadership trainer. She works with the kind of the most elite business people. She does her workshops in the United Kingdom and she charges something like 4,000 pounds a day for her service. So she's got to be good. She, her husband is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and somehow they've combined quantum physics with psychology and psychiatry and the brain. So it's an interesting book, but she goes into archetypes, Jungian archetypes. Uh, she puts it all in a mandala. So she does personality types with Myers-Briggs, you know, all the different personality types. She does the archetypes. Um, she looks at the intellect, our perception of outer reality, the IQ. She looks at the, the emotions, and she looks at the spiritual, which she calls the spiritual intelligence. And she said, in the brain, what happens is information comes in, and the neurons are like a transmitter. They send the message across the cortex, the cerebral cortex. And so you get your logic lined up, and you know you know. But then the emotions come up from the body, and they're, uh, they're more like this. And so... Your intellect, your IQ is here, perception. Your emotions come up and kind of fill in the blanks with your intellect. But the spiritual intelligence is really then what you do with that. Whether you figure out your deep unconscious maybe motivations for your behavior, you're aware of how you're feeling and how that might be uh, affecting how you're thinking. It's a much higher level of intelligence. So I'm going to just tell you a few things that she said that these are some things that help us raise our spiritual intelligence. Meditation, reading a couple of pages of a spiritual or inspiring book or a poem, going for a walk in the woods. Going for a walk in the woods, but in a certain way. So you know, have you been like me? You've been walking in the woods, but you're thinking of something else, and it's raining, and you know, the rain is a beautiful sound. There's flowers, there's trees and leaves and you're thinking of something else, your intellect, your IQ, your knowledge base says rain, flowers, tree, but really you're off here thinking of something else. To raise your spiritual intelligence, 
You walk in those woods and you are present. And you look at the flower and you see the petal and you see that dewdrop of rain on the petal and you see that little raindrop run down the petal. And you, you see the rain dripping off the leaves onto your path. And you take a deep breath and you feel the air and the humidity. And you get this surge of, ah, oh, life is good. That caters to our spiritual intelligence. Without that spiritual intelligence, life is not meaningful. It's robotic. It's materialistic. It's just rational. But really, life isn't rational, is it? We need spiritual intelligence. And one of the ways that we develop our spiritual intelligence is to take time to be in silence and stillness, to be in touch with our inner being. The other book I'm reading, it's probably because my stage of life, it's called From Aging to Saging. And it's a wonderful book about mentoring. It's a book written by a Jewish rabbi, Salman Shalami. And he writes this, I was approaching my 60th birthday and feeling the futility that had invaded my soul, plunging me into a state of depression that no amount of busyness could dispel. I had been working tirelessly and joyously in a pioneering movement to renew Jewish spirituality in a contemporary world. A Jewish rabbi schooled in the Kabbalah, that's the mystical wisdom of Judaism, I had broadened my base of operations by studying with a Sufi, a Buddhist teacher, Native American elders, Catholic monks, as well as humanistic and transpersonal psychologists. Well, if you were 60 and you had done all this study and you had broadened and opened your mind, don't you think by the age of 60 you would anticipate feeling pretty darn good about yourself and quite fulfilled and at peace? And I think he thought that too. But there is something beyond our conscious self. There is a divine spirit, a great intelligence of life. It's been called many things, and some people say it's our psyche, but really it is that urge, that divine discontent that can knock on our door at various stages in our life and call us to a bigger idea of who we are and what we're here to do. And if we resistant, we sometimes get sick. We sometimes get depressed. We sometimes get angry, bitter, resentful. We sometimes lose our joy and we lose our way. The rabbi said he decided to go on a retreat, a shamanic retreat, he said. It's a 40-day and 40-night retreat at a center, a spiritual center. So I don't know if you know this, but the 40 days and 40 nights is everywhere in the Bible, 144 times at least in the Bible. And it really speaks to creating new life. It's the lunar months to create a new child. It's, it's the metaphor for I need to make myself anew, I need to rebirth myself. And so he went away desolate, but with a plan to rebirth himself and to listen to his inner mentor, 
his spirit. So he did many things, but one of the things he came out with was a very clear message that the next stage of his life, that he was to develop almost developmental stages for people from, from the time they hit about maybe 55 until death. And that he went about this very seriously, talked to all of the leaders in gerontology, looked at the brain research about what happens to the human brain and really understood that the human brain is always developing and building new connections. And that as the, the sage learns new things and is mentoring, and mentoring, that the brain actually develops and that it really develops in these spiritual intelligence centers that we're finally primed, ripe and ready for that harvest. So he's just done a wonderful lot of work um, in the United States, Canada, and really around the world, uh, and written this book saying of all the things that he teaches people do, to do, to raise their spiritual intelligence, but also to engage in the final stage of their life, and to mentor young people, to mentor others, and to, be, to know what a wise sage is, and to not waste that wisdom, uh, because they don't know who to share it with. As our spiritual intelligence increases, we get a healthier independence, our conscious choices improve, we become conscious that we have a choice. We're more willing to be accountable for our actions. We have this sense of affirmation about life. We have authentic dialogue with people where we're not interested in talking with the, just the trivial things, the surface things, that we actually want to be real with each other. That there's a genuine acceptance of the self with all its foibles, a clarity in boundaries, and there's an embodiment and ripening of virtues that not only do we know what the right thing is, that we have actually embodied integrity. We've actually embodied the ability to speak our truth. We've actually embodied this positive self or outer regard for others and seeing the best in other people. There's this other wonderful story by Rinpoche. And it's, and it's uh, about that part of us that wants to hang on, maybe wants to hang on to the stability in our life, wants to hang on to the job, wants, or wants to have the job, says, I cannot live unless I get this. The grasping part of this is very fearful. And he said, imagine that something in your life that you want so bad that you're sure you'll be hopeless if you don't get it. You'll be distraught to the point of not being able to cope if you don't get it. You absolutely must have this. And take it like a coin and put it in the palm of your hand and now hold it in your hand tightly. And now life comes along and it may or may not be given to you, but you have to open your hand at some point and the coin falls out and now you have nothing. If your dream did not come true, it's easy to just really lose your optimism. But he said, instead of that, put that coin in your hand and open your hand and just leave it open. So here's my dream, what I really want my life to look like in the next stage of my life. I must have that. I've got my hand open. Just the fact that that's my energetic, that's my state of being, I'm open. I do want it. I am afraid it won't happen. I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't get it. But it feels different to not clutch it, to not tighten up my body, 
Do not hold myself rigid. Do not tell me that story, myself that story if I must have. Pema Children talks about, and I think it's a Rinpoche story too, but Pema Children teaches this, and it's called the Tonglen practice. And it's that feeling of, I'm in pain, I'm suffering, I'm unhappy, I must have, or I just simply can't cope with this. And we put that in our left hand, and we squeeze it tight because we have to. We're terrified, and we must have it, and we're in pain, and we're suffering. But this hand we leave wide open because there's that part in us that no matter what's going in our life, where we know at the center of our being there is a stillness. I don't know if you've come to a place in your life where you've sort of lost it all and you realize that even in spite of the fact that you know, you're a wreck and your life's not working, that there still is something in you that's just observing it. So that, but warm it up a bit. In this hand, put in the mentor spirit, this unconditional positive calmness, knowing that all is well. So we've got these two things going. I'm terrified and I must have this and all is well. And so as we breathe, we send this all is well right up our arm into our heart. And when it hits our heart, we warm it up with love, with positive regard, with the mentor's spirit. And we pass it right down our arm into this frightened child part of us that says, I cannot exist if this doesn't happen for me. Until finally we realize that we've come to a point of maybe not complete peace, but more peaceful, a little more optimistic, a little more willing to think that maybe this too will pass. That maybe even if I don't get this thing that I want, that something even better could come. That maybe it's just not worth wasting all of my energy on, that life won't be over if things don't go my way. Dr. Jean Houston also wrote this. She's mentored about, oh, many, many cultures in over a hundred countries, and she has a mystery school where she talks about our archetypes and, and our intelligences. A wonderful mentor and teacher. She wrote the preface in our Science of Mind magazine. If her name seems familiar, yeah, she's in our, that hardcover of the, of, the Science of or not, not the Science of Mind textbook the textbook that we take for foundations and for many of our classes. She's the, the uh, person that wrote the uh, preface there. There is a saying that what the caterpillar calls the end of the world, creation calls a butterfly. I believe that it's butterfly time. Just as guidance cells in the mush that is the caterpillar in its cocoon suddenly begin to activate and transform the mush into a butterfly, so this is a time that we realize that the cells in our body are guiding us. They're guiding our communities too. And that even the cells of our planet are calling us to come together, to form something gorgeous, interdependent, life-giving. It's cross-pollinating all the cultures, like the cross-pollination of good food. You see that in our, in our city. Ideas, spiritual forms, all glowing with light, becoming transparent and transcending, arising out of the mush We've been caught in these many hundreds, thousands of years. We're now taking flight in the air with a new story, which is emerging in our time. Your creative power is not an act of your will. It's rather the act of your willingness to believe. Your creative power comes from the originating spirit itself. 
which knows no limits. It's conditioned by no circumstance and it's governed by no law outside itself. And the wonderful Oprah Winfrey who says, the whole point of being alive is to evolve into the complete person that you were intended to be. I looked on the internet for women mentors and Oprah Winfrey is the one that comes up time and time again. I don't think we've done a very good job of writing our stories as women. And Dr. Jane Houston says that this next era, the feminine and the masculine are going to rise up together as equals and that that, that is going to transform civilization. We have a wonderful spirit within us, around us, and always moving through us. It's a life-giving, divine spirit. It's wired into us. We're hardwired to be butterflies, to transform the mush of our lives into something beautiful. Know that with me. Namaste.